Well, good morning again, church. It's great to see all of you this morning. If you haven't been with us at all this fall, we are now, I think, the sixth week in a series on the book of Ruth. We're calling this book Love Without Limits. And here's the question that we're asking in this uh, book week by week. In a world like ours, a world that is marked by chaos and suffering and extreme division, what would it mean for us to be marked instead by love? And what would it mean for us as a community, instead of being defined by the polarities and the divisions and the conflict of the society around us, what would it mean if we were instead marked by hesed, that Hebrew word that means the covenant, faithful keeping love of God? That's what we're asking week by week. And today what I want to do is widen the lens a bit and talk about a huge theme in the book of Ruth, one that we've already seen come up, is certainly present in the text this morning, is present really in every book, but that we have not really talked about directly. And it's a truth that I think potentially could have a transformative impact on your life. So I'm just going to go into salesman mode here for a second. What if I told you that there was a very simple thing available to you that could help you live a healthier more peaceful, less anxious life. What if I told you that this thing, if you put it to work in your life every day, can deepen your happiness, fill you with gratitude, liberate you from fear, and give you courage to face hard and difficult things? And what if I told you that this thing is not $99.99, nor $49.99, nor even $19.99 like our hymnal, but is actually free. And you probably already know it and believe it, and all you have to do is to put it to work and start remembering it and living out of it on a daily basis. Don't you want to know what it is? Yes, thank you. Yes, you do. I know you do. Here it is. It is the Christian doctrine. Yes, we're talking about doctrine today. It is the Christian doctrine of providence. Providence. Providence is the simple truth that God sustains and guides the world he has created and directs it to its appointed purpose. The name of this sermon today is Love Provides because that's what providence is. You can see the root of the word is provision. It is the truth that in his infinite love, God powerfully and omnisciently provides for his people and for the world, bringing everything towards his good and gracious purposes. That's providence. And if this is true, then it really does change everything for you. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at what this is, what it's all about, how we see it in the book of Ruth, and how it can begin to transform our everyday lives. So I want to begin just with a question this morning, and it's just this. What is providence, and how do we see it in this book? Well, let me just offer you a simple definition. Providence is the truth that in his infinite love, God actively sustains and provides for the world he has created, directing all things toward his appointed purpose. What this means is that God is always in control. He's always at work in all times, in all circumstances, bringing about his goodwill for all things. This means that there's always more going on than you can see. There's always more behind the surface than you can recognize, and that God is constantly at work leading our lives, leading our world towards his good purpose for you and for all things. This is a huge theme in the Bible. It begins with Genesis 12, when God comes to an old man named Abraham and to his old barren wife named Sarai, and he comes to them, and God makes this astounding hesed promise. He says to him, out of you, old man, who, me? Yes, you, 
and your wife will come my great promise to all the earth. From you will come a multitudinous nation, and through this nation will come the Messiah for all the earth, and through that Messiah will come the blessings of all nations. God says, here's the promise. This is the destiny toward which I am bringing all things, the blessing of the nations. And what we see happening in the Old Testament is God making the promise and then intervening in order to keep that promise going, to direct history, to control circumstances. So for example, in the book of Exodus, the promise is being threatened. God's people are in slavery. They're, they're languishing. They're in serious trouble. And so what does God do? He providentially intervenes. He steps in. He provides these extraordinary things to carry out his purposes. Remember that, friends? You remember the plagues, you know, frogs and gnats and blood, and, and he splits a sea in half, and he destroys an Egyptian army with the sea, and he sends a pillar of smoke and fire to guide his people, and all of this is to save his people from destruction and to ensure the carrying out of his promise. So that's one way that you see providence in the Bible, these extraordinary, miraculous interventions of God over governments and in history. Now, compare that with the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, we also see God's providence acting in a very powerful way, but rather than God acting in extraordinary, miraculous ways, we see him acting in very ordinary, even, even everyday ways. Also in the book of Ruth, God's people are under threat. Also in the book of Ruth, God's promise is in jeopardy. The people are suffering. They're under famine and threat of starvation. They're suffering under lawlessness and chaos from the time of the judges. The future of God's people is grim. And what does God do? He intervenes, but he does not do it through miracles. He does it through these incredibly ordinary and mundane ways. There's no miracles in the book of Ruth. There's no pillars of fire. There's no split seas. There's no plagues. In fact, the narrator hardly even mentions God doing anything at all. And yet, what happens by the end of the book of Ruth? God's people are saved. And the promise continues to move forward, just like in the book of Exodus. But here, God does it through the quiet, everyday circumstances of everyday life. There's this wonderful phrase in the book of Ruth that's in our passage. If you look at our passage and you see verse 3 of chapter 2, it says, Ruth just so happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The Hebrew there actually is really funny. It says, Ruth by chance chanced upon. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew. Some translators uh, make that um, as luck would have it, or as it turned out, the NIV says it just so happened. The narrator is using this as a humorous, ironic, literary device. If you could see his face as he's writing this, he's winking. He's going, it just so happened, you know, what he's trying to say is behind this apparent accident, God is actually powerfully at work. And the book of Ruth is full of this stuff, right? So it just so happens that there's a famine in Israel. And so this family decides of all the places, as luck would have it, they decide to go to Moab, where Naomi's two sons, against the law of God, marry Moabite women, one of whom just so happens to be this extraordinary woman, Ruth. And it just so happens, just at the time they are in total despair, the famine lifts and they head back to Israel. And it just so happens that Ruth just decides to wake up one morning and go out to glean the fields. And it just so happens that of all the hundreds of fields and all the tiny little choices that she could have made and all the left turns and right turns she could have made, she just so 
happens, as luck would have it, to end up in this particular field of this man, Boaz, who just so happens to be this long-lost relative of Amelimelech that Naomi had forgotten about. And it just so happens that he's a very good and generous-hearted man. And it just so happens that he also by as luck would have it, to be a kinsman redeemer who is the, one of the few people in Israel who can redeem Naomi's family. And it just so happens that he is of meritable status. What luck? <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> it's amazing, right? And so what the narrator is trying to show you is that every one of these tiny little ordinary details, every which one of them could be seen as entirely pedestrian, actually God is overseeing and intervening in all things to carry out his redemptive purposes. And y'all, this is such good news. This is such good news for you and for me. You know, there have been actually some folks throughout history that have argued that the book of Ruth should be expunged from the biblical canon. That it should be removed because it doesn't have any miracles. It doesn't have any extraordinary uh, demonstrations or revelations of God's glory. I tell you, I am so thankful that this book is in the canon. Because if I got to be honest with you, my life feels a lot more like the book of Ruth and a lot less like the book of Exodus. You know, I, um, I, I, I frankly am not seeing crazy, miraculous stuff happen all around me all the time. Every once in a while I do, which is great, but most of the time I am just desperate to get breakfast on the table so that we're not late for school, and I'm struggling through traffic to try to get my kids to soccer practice on time, and I'm desperately trying to wade through my overwhelming inbox, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get the leaves off my lawn. I mean, most it's, it's easy to look at frogs falling from the sky and say, huh, looks like God's up to something, <laughs> right? It's much harder to look at the totally mundane, everyday things in my everyday life and believe that God is at work. And the book of Ruth is, says he is. He's powerfully at work. Don't be fooled. He's moving, acting, guiding, directing, overseeing, providing, even in the most ordinary of ways. Just because you can't see how he's working does not mean he's working. And his ways, you can hardly ever see it. His ways are so mysterious. His purposes are so glorious. His, his purposes are so infinitely beyond us that most of the time we only get one fraction of a millionth of an idea of what God may be up to. Let me just give you an example in my own life, okay? I decided for some odd reason when I was a high school student to go to the University of Virginia, even though I had never been there, because my friend Scotty, whose older brother went to Virginia, went there and liked it. So I went there, and, um, and it just so happened that at the same time as I started as a first year at UVA, there just so happened to be this other guy named Danny Avula who was starting there. And when he was four years old, his mother noticed that he was wicked smart. So she decided to skip kindergarten and put him in first grade at age four. So even though he's two years younger than I am, we just so happened to start UVA at the same time. It just so happened that we were living in adjacent dorms. It just so happened we joined the same Christian fellowship group. And it just so happened that we became good friends. Now, it just so happened that Danny met a girl at UVA named Mary Kay who just so happened to grow up in Richmond. So when it came to the point that Danny applied for med school, they decided to apply for MCV. So it just so happened they came to Richmond. Just so happened Mary Kay grew up at Third Presbyterian Church. So it just so happened that as I was finishing seminary, Danny called me up on the phone and he said, hey, just so happens Third Pres has an associate pastor position and as luck would have it, I'm on the search committee. And so I applied <laughs> and, uh, and y'all, guess what? So what am I saying? I'm saying this. I am standing here right now because Danny Abula put, Danny Abula's mom put him in first grade at age four. <laughs> and that's how providence works. 
You see, you never see his hand. Who could look at a decision like a parent putting their kid in kindergarten and first grade at four and say, oh, God's up to something for third prize in Richmond, you know? <laughs> no, no, no. But see, in his infinite love, God sustains all things, provides for all things, directing all things towards his appointed purposes. Even when you're not aware of it, God is at work. As much as in the ordinary, as in the extraordinary, as much as when you see it, as when you don't. He is working, he is acting, he's overseeing, he's providing, writing your story. Writing your story, the great author, even when you do not see his hand. That is the truth of providence. You with me? Okay, so here's the question then. This is the question you should be asking every week. I wish you did. I wish I did. How would your life be different if you believed this? Now, and I don't mean just like in your head. I mean in your soul, you know? Like deep down to your toes, believe this. Lived out of this truth. I just want to suggest a few things I think that we see in this text. First of all, it would mean gratitude in the good things. Gratitude in the good things. If this is true, it means everything good, everything beautiful, every blessing, every turn of fortune in your life, everything is given directly from the hand of the God who loves you. Love provides. Look, when Ruth comes home, did you hear this in the text? When Ruth comes home, Naomi sees how much grain she has, and then she hears whose field she ended up in. What does she say, verse 20? Oh my goodness, may he be blessed by Yahweh, whose hesed, kindness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. See, Naomi doesn't just say, oh, what luck. You ended up in that guy's field. He's a long-distance relative of mine. No, she sees through this ordinary, seemingly accidental circumstance, she sees through it to see the hand of a loving, providing God behind this ordinary turn of events. You know, one of the main characteristics of our late modern Western age is what philosopher Charles Taylor calls that we live in a secular age. We live in a disenchanted world. We no longer see the glory. We no longer see the mystery. We have explainable causation for everything. It's like we're looking at a painting and all we see is what's in the frame. We don't see what's beyond the frame, nor, nor do we ever see the, one, the, the, the hand of the artist himself. A disenchanted world, a world within the frame. Now, by, in contrast to this, Jesus says in Matthew 6 that we live in a fathered world. A world that God is actively at work in, creating, providing, sustaining everything, even the little flowers, even the little birds. You know, I saw a pair of goldfinches yesterday in my yard. That is the Father's work, the Father's provision, the Father's glory. Jesus says this is a Father world, and he's not contradicting science. Jesus loves photosynthesis. He really does. <laughs> but, but what he's saying is, is that behind the operations of creation, the Father is at work providentially ordering and providing for all things. Every flower that blooms, every blade of grass, every, everything. He's there orchestrating, bringing beauty to life. The breath that you're breathing right now. The coolness of the air that braced your skin when you walked out on a cold October morning this morning. The egg that you, that remarkable egg that you cracked open into a pan this morning to find something delicious. Uh, the, the, the prescription that your doctor wrote you this week to help ease your pain. The text that you got from a friend offering a word of encouragement. The, the parking space you found out there in that crazy lot. You know, <laughs> Jesus is saying, do you see you live in a fathered world? 
Do you see his hand? My dear friend Bob Stamps taught me this little prayer. I want to teach it to you. It's a one-line prayer, and it goes like this. Hear the praise of this grateful heart. He says, every time, anything, even the smallest good, you just turn your eyes outside of that frame, and you look to the one who gave it. You know, that first sip of coffee in the morning. When my little girl runs up and hugs my niece. The warm shower. Hear the praise of this grateful heart. I was driving down um, east down River Road last week. It was about 7.15 in the morning. And I just turned around. I came around that curve just at the moment that the sun was coming up through the trees. And it was that moment where the rays of light were just shooting through the fragile green leaves. And those rays looked so numinous, so, so, so almost like you could go out and just grab them. Hear the praise of this grateful heart. It's not, friends, it's not happiness that leads to gratitude. It's gratitude that leads to happiness. And gratitude is one of the most powerful ways as an act of resistance over and against the secular age to see the Father's providential hands providing all things good. You see that? What happiness, what joy when you open your eyes to see the Father's hand. So gratitude in the good things. Second, though, hope in the hard things. I think if we're honest, most of us would say it's easy to see God in the good things. It's much harder to see him in the hard things. You know, we moved to a new house this past week, and it was horrible. You know, <laughs> I'm never going to move again. Um, I, I highly do not recommend it. Anyway, one of the things that happens when you move, and especially after you've had your stuff in storage for a long time, is you start pulling this stuff, and you're out, and you're like, oh, my gosh. You know, I was unpacking my box of shirts. I said, oh, I for totally forgot about this shirt. Don't even remember I had it, you know? Sometimes I think that we suffer from this deep inchoate fear that that's kind of like what God is like with us, that he's kind of looking down at you and he's, he sees you. He's like, oh, forgot about her. Does she still exist? <laughs> She's still around. You know, the diagnosis hits. You know, the, the, the issue you're having with your kid is only getting worse. You thought you're getting a promotion, you get laid off instead. I mean, so many times we're like, hello, I'm here, I'm here. And providence teaches us, this book teaches us, that God is not just present in the blessings, he is present, just as present in the suffering. It's not a happy truth, but it's true. That when you think he is farthest from you, or even that he has turned against you or forgotten you, the truth is that he is laying the foundation stones of your life for a far greater happiness that you might not currently see. You know, I was reading uh, John Calvin this week on Providence. Boy, is that good. I highly recommend it for bedtime reading. Um, and, and Calvin writes about, he says, Here, here's, a, here's a case of Providence. He says, there's a place in the Old Testament called Dothan. Do you remember what happened in Dothan, you Bible scholars? Two significant events happened in Dothan. The first event that happens is in Genesis when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. They take their brother, they throw him into a pit. Joseph prays and prays, God deliver me. Does God answer? No. He's sold into slavery and he undergoes decades of misery. God does not answer. A couple centuries later, another thing happens in Dothan. God's people are in terrible threat under enemy siege. Elisha is there. He prays, oh, God, deliver us. Does God answer? Oh, yes, he does. He sends an army of fiery, angelic chariots 
How's that for help? And he destroys and takes out God's people. Now, here's what Calvin says. In which story is God at work? In the story of Elisha, when God dramatically intervenes, or in the story of Joseph, when God does nothing? You know? Well, the answer is both, right? In fact, in the Joseph story, if you know it, you know that it's only because he's sold into slavery, because he's put in Potiphar's household, because he is thrown into prison to rot there for an unjust crime. It's only because of those decades of misery. It's only because of these things that Joseph becomes second in command in all of Egypt and is able to save hundreds of thousands of his own people from famine. As he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me. God intended it for good to accomplish the saving of many lives. So that's the truth of Dothan, Calvin says. God is as actively at work in the silence of God to Joseph as in the noisy miracle of God for Elisha. Isn't that beautiful? And some of you are asking for a miracle right now, and you're only getting silence. You're looking for God, and you're getting nothing. And providence means that you can trust that even in the silence, God is at work, and his purposes are good for you and for his people. Who could have imagined that God was at work in the barren womb of Ruth or the the loss of of her husband for Naomi or the death of her own husband for Ruth or the, the descent into poverty or the, and the living on the knife's edge of desolation. Who could have imagined seeing that situation that God was actually laying the groundwork for the future King David and for the Messiah to come? Providence means that you can trust him, believing that he is at work in your life, in the silence, in the suffering, in the sorrow, that nothing can dislodge you from his hand, that not, not your sin even, not the way that you've messed up, not the way that other people have messed with you. God uses even the worst things, the things that you think may be unforgivable or insurmountable. No matter what happens, no matter the way you screw up, no matter what you do or what is done to you, you cannot write yourself out of God's script. You just can't. You can't write your kids out of God's script. You can't mess up his will. You're never forgotten. He loves you too much. He's that powerful, that strong. Your life is never out of control. Do you believe that? Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So, hope in the hard things. And then finally, providence can give us courage in the everyday things. Sometimes people think that if God is ultimately controlling and directing everything, it'll just kind of make you a limp noodle, make you passive, complacent, because, you know, God's directing everything. But what we see here in the book of Ruth is a group of people, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, who all deeply believe in the doctrine of providence. They're good Israelites. And yet they act with incredible courage and bravery to do what they know needs to be done. For them, providence does not make them passive, but active. It does not make them timid, but bold. It leads them to do courageous things, take risks, leave all behind, do radical things for God and for each other. And it's all because they deeply believe that they are held in the strong hand of God. Listen, listen to me, friends. If you think that the course of your life and the outcome of your future is up to you and the choices that you make every day for your own life, I'm telling you, you're toast. Seriously. And, and, and what's more, you'll never have courage. You'll never be able to take risks. You'll never be able to do the right thing or do the hard thing because you think that your life and the outcome is ultimately up 
to you. But listen, what if you believed that your life and your future are in the trustworthy hands of God and that he's there, he has your back, everything that happens turns out for his good purposes. He is so powerful. He can even use your mistakes for his glory. How different, what what kind of courage could you have? What kind of risk could you take? Have you ever done this where you're reading like a really thrilling novel and you're so scared about what's going to happen that you skip to the very end and read the last two pages just to make sure everything turns out okay? Ever done that? Oh, come on. No? Well, I'm sorry. I do it all the time. Um, But listen, sometimes people criticize the book of Ruth and Esther and Job even because they have these terrible suffering, but everything ends up so happy at the end. And they say real life isn't like that. But listen, real life is like that if you're a Christian. We do actually, we can skip to the end. We can read what happens at the end of all things. These stories are just pointing to the great story of the world. The Bible shows us that despite the tragedies and unspeakable sufferings of history and the rebellion of humanity and the horrible evil and violence and chaos in our world, everything ends happily. That history is not cyclical. Your life is not random. We are not a standing on a meaningless rock hurtling through the universe without a driver. No, history is driven by a promise, a promise that God made all those years ago to Abraham and that will be fulfilled the day that he renews all things, that God wins. He defeats evil. The nations are blessed. Everything sad becomes untrue. What would your life be like if you believed that is the conclusion of your life? How would you be different if you believe that the end of your life is heading towards that? You could be like Ruth. Is God calling you to take a big risk? Is God calling you to leave something behind and take on something new? Is God calling you to make a costly commitment to someone or maybe to endure in a painful commitment that you've already made? You can do it because of God's providence. He's holding you fast. Or maybe God's calling you to be like Boaz, to give generously and sacrificially to someone else out of your money or your time. Or maybe he's calling you to take on someone vulnerable into your life or your family's life, even at risk and cost to yourself. You can do it now because of God's providence. Or maybe you're like Naomi. Maybe God is calling you to put just one foot in front of the other, even in the midst of unspeakable tragedy, because you know that God is guiding and undergirding and leading and directing all things to his good purposes. See, you can do these things now because of providence, because God is mightily working in your life to carry out his ultimate purposes. And if you believe that, you can face anything, you can do anything, and you can have the poise and power you need even in the hardest times. I love what Pascal once wrote, that it is glorious, he said, to ride on a ship in stormy weather when you know that the ship cannot go down. And that is the tumultuous joy of the Christian life, he writes. It's laughter, it's humor, it's victorious, overcoming power, this knowledge that now our life is a ship that cannot go down. That's your life. It can't go down. How would you live differently if you believe that? So, providence is the truth that love provides. God provides oversees, directs, leads all things, seen and unseen, ordinary, extraordinary. And because of this, you can live a life of gratitude, a life of hope, and a life of courage. How do you know this to be true? Because of the gospel of Jesus, friends, which is the greatest act of providence 
in the history of the world. God took the most horrible thing imaginable, the execution of the Son of God on a Roman instrument of torture, and he used that as an instrument for the redemption of the world. Talk about a twist in the plot. Just like in Ruth, a horrible tragedy is used by God to bring about a glorious outcome. The execution of the Messiah, the renewal of all things. And now because of Jesus, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing that happens to you, nothing you do, nothing done to you. If God can do that through Jesus for you, he can take any crucifixion in your life and make it into a resurrection. He can do that because of providence. Young Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, when he was 18 years old, preached his first sermon in church. And the name of the sermon was Why Christians Are So Happy. Sounds like a shallow teenager sermon, doesn't it? Why Christians Are So Happy. But here were the points of the sermon. Point one, because our bad things always turn out for good. Point two, because our good things can never be taken away. And point three, because the best things are yet to come. Christians are the happiest people. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be one? Don't you want to be a part of this? Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for the gift and the knowledge of the truth of providence, that despite all the wild and difficult things that happen in our lives, you are behind them all, guiding and directing all things. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, um, Aaron Rose is going to lead a song that is actually based on Psalm 23, which is a wonderful song about God's provision, a shepherd who provides for his little sheep. And while Aaron is singing, I just want you to invite you to reflect on the words and maybe even consider how you might respond to this sermon. Is there a blessing in your life in which you have failed to see the, fa- the hand of the Father behind it as the one who gave it to you? Is there a discouragement in your life in which you are struggling to, with the silence of God and he's calling you again to re-motivate in your trust of him? Or is there a risk that he's calling you to take, a costly decision he's calling you to make and that you need the courage to do it? You have everything you need. You have all that you need, the, the promise of God's provision. He's upholding your life, so let's reflect on that.